Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your morning shot of news and information. It's Monday, so it's start your week. I'm Andrew Harrison, up early with your rough guide to the events of the next seven days, at least insofar as they look the way they do right now at 10 past eight in the morning. We hope you're finding the bunker useful. If you are, please do fill in our listener survey and help us make it still better. There's a link in the show notes and five respondents will get the bunker mug or t-shirts of their choice. Joining me at the crack of dawn, it's commentator, columnist, cook, thief, wife and lover, Alex Andreo. Good morning, Alex. <laughs> Good morning. Hardly the crack of dawn, mate. <laughs> well, maybe. So it's Autumn Statement Week, and we've all been trailed a lot of stuff, lots of briefing over the weekend. What are you expecting? Well, it's very difficult to know what to expect because I, I'm not sure Downing Street still knows what to expect. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary that it looks like big things are still up for grabs. Like there's been a number of reports that inheritance tax, for instance, was on the table until yesterday, basically. It was junked at the very last minute because it was trailing so poorly. And so that gives them then room to do something else. And basically reports are that it was only agreed yesterday between Sunak and the Chancellor. I mean, that seems to me a pretty extraordinary thing because I guess it will give them quite minimal time to fit it in with the OBR um, projections and publish the book that will go with the budget. But maybe they've been preparing for different kinds of scenarios so they have different versions ready to go. I mean, some of this, of course, is deliberate because there are several backbench groups pulling them in different directions, wanting different things. And I guess it's not very helpful for them to trigger them ahead of time when they still feel they can affect the result, because then the motivation is there to go out big in the media to try and change their mind from doing X, whatever X is. And so I guess the dysfunction in the Tory party at the moment is acting to keep the budget very heavily under covers because they want it to be a surprise to their own MPs, effectively. Both Hunt and Sunak have been briefing tax cuts for low and middle earners. The Mail and the Tory press have been absolutely gagging for tax cuts for months now. And the Times at the weekend wrote that while the move would fuel inflation, Hunt and Sunak could attempt to offset the impact by squeezing welfare payments and making cuts elsewhere. But Hunt told Sky, the one thing we won't do is any kind of tax cut that fuels inflation. So how does that work? 
I mean, it, it is impossible for a tax cut not to fuel inflation, surely. Well, I mean, we know how that works. The government has squeezed the pay of nurses while removing the cap for bankers' bonuses. That's how that works. It works the same way it has always worked when there's a conservative government. There is a magical level of wealth below which what motivates people is less money and above which what motivates them is more money. Carrot for the rich, stick for the poor, plus a chance. I mean, it is a difficult balance because... Very different, economically, I mean, very different people vote for the Tories in the Red Wall than they do in the so-called Blue Wall. And we know there's not really enough money for both, possibly for either. And there's a second balance to be struck, I guess, because crowing too much that their plan is working and everything is going splendidly now cannot be very, very different to how people have feeling in their pocket. Because yes, inflation is slower, but it just means that prices are going up less fast. But they are still going up faster than we've been used to for decades, right? And so Mm. I think many economists underestimate the effect of Christmas, I think. When people come to do their Christmas food shop, right, which is annual, they will notice. That is a thing that we do every year. And broadly speaking, we buy the same stuff. And if this year that stuff costs 350 quid instead of 200 quid, people take note. On the benefit tightening side, obviously this always plays well in the Tory press, but The Guardian reported at the weekend that ministers would ordinarily use the September figure for inflation when putting up working age benefits. And that will be a 6.7% increase but Hunt has not ruled out using October's figure instead, which is 4.6%. That would cut spending by £3 billion. But of course, that's £3 billion that's not going to people on benefits who need it. Is this tax rhetoric coming from sound Treasury economics, or is it the number 10 election panic room simply wanting a good headline on the mail? I'm not sure they're as distinct as people suggest. You know, Sunak does not seem to me to be a hands-off PM when it comes to the Treasury, and Hunt is not exactly a tower of strength. So I think this is all Sunak, which means it's all electioneering at the moment. And I don't think it will be limited to just choosing the lower rate to operate benefits by. It seems to me that basically asylum seekers have not worked out well as a group to victimise, and election strategists have been casting around for a new group, and I think benefit claimants might be it. Hunt told Laura Kunzberg on Sunday something that I think has gone largely unnoticed, but it certainly made me prick up my ears, which was an implication that there must be some sort of time limit to benefits. He sort of even mentioned six months. So I think look out for that. I think they might go with a lower uprating of benefits, but also time-limiting them, because that would then give them maybe some big money to play with come March, which will probably be their pre-election budget. You mentioned Rwanda turning out not to be quite the dirty carpet they can beat for votes Mm. that they thought. We're told that the emergency legislation to override the Supreme Court's decision will be published this week, or at least soon, whatever soon means. What do we know about that? It's very hard to make a prediction about it, but it's one is that 
the Lords will be the most difficult aspect of getting this legislation through. Yes, and I think because significantly this is not in the manifesto. And we know that the House of Lords, by convention, is much more hesitant to intervene when it comes to policies that were in the manifesto and are seen as part of the election promise of the government, but are quite happy to be a bit more meddlesome when it comes to things that they see as very political that have not been through the rigor of an election. I mean, one thing to look out for, immigration figures are out on Thursday. So that, I think, will be a big moment. I would expect them to go down and go down significantly because all last year, government has been saying that net immigration figures, which were sky high last year, were because of the Hong Kongers and the Ukrainians that, you know, had come in during that time. So if migration figures have not gone down significantly to sort of pre-Ukraine levels, I think the government will be in big, big trouble with their own backbenchers, as well as parties to the right of them. Now, I think the, the piece of legislation that we will see has to do with this upgrading of the Memorandum of Understanding to a treaty and will contain some kind of clause that seeks to allow the government to either circumvent or ignore human rights legislation. Now, that could be quite a broad clause that says you can you can ignore it, any legislation to do with human rights, meaning that it includes other international treaties, not just the European Convention of Human Rights. It includes domestic law, et cetera, et cetera. So it could be very broadly cast, or it could be quite narrow. It could be, you know, when it comes to deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda, you can ignore this provision of the ECHR. The noises from the backbenches is that the semi-skimmed option, as it were, is not going to work because, as we saw in the judgment on the Rwanda scheme, judges took time to list all the other bits of legislation that it fell foul of. And so I think trying to circumvent just the ACHR won't work, but maybe that's what Sunak wants. Maybe Sunak is just playing for time. He wants a thing that he's like, look, I'm doing it. Then it can concentrate fire on Labour because they will, of course, vote against it. Um, you know, we don't have enough sitting days anyway to do it before Christmas. So then that takes us into January and who knows what happens by then. Uh, usually a, a budget or autumn statement week would involve a bit of a, a sort of internal ceasefire within the Conservative Party. But uh, if there's going to be an immigration kick off the very next day after uh, the autumn statement. I, I think, you know, I think it will kick off in, in all kinds of ways. Because of, the problem is this, you see, the economy is not really going anywhere. It's flatlining. So it's not having the improvement that they need. The immigration stuff is not really going anywhere. And the deficit they're trying to overcome electorally is massive. So the thing, whatever the thing is every month that they pin their hopes on, whether it's Sunak's announcement that he's going back on green, or then his announcement that he's cancelling HS2, or then a conference speech where he claims to be the change candidate, 
or another budget. Whenever the thing comes along, it can never match the expectations for the thing because you just need guns of a size that they don't currently possess to overturn this this sort of deficit. And the closer it gets to election time, and the more that deficit doesn't reverse, the more desperate and panicking and angry and scrappy the backbenchers will get. Well, meanwhile, if there's not enough going on, we've also got the continuation of the COVID inquiry this week, and there are some quite big box office figures, aren't there? Chris Whitty, Patrick Valance, Jonathan Van Tam, Kemi Badenoch. What phases this we are entering into of the COVID inquiry? So we are now definitely in the mix between the big, big names from the science side of things and the smaller names from the politics side of things. So I would say this is the last bit before the big box office politics names. We're talking Hancock, Sunak, Johnson, etc. So they will be, I think, the first two weeks of December. But what's coming up this week is absolutely vitally important because all for the last month we've been seeing extracts from you know, Witty's diaries and Valence's notes saying how unhappy they are with being made to stand there and, you know, the claims that the government is following the science when they're not really following the science, they're taking the science, reading it how they want, adjusting it how they want. And I think it will be very interesting to question them, although, having said that, they are the sort of small C conservative personalities that I think, you know, they will be very guarded in their comments. Maybe Valence less so. He tends to be a little bit more outspoken. So this will be really interesting to watch. And we've got a bunker coming up tomorrow where I chat with Professor Christina Pargel. We sort of give an update of where the second phase of the inquiry has got to so far and pick out the really important things that it's revealed already going forward. So I would urge listeners to to look out for that as a sort of cheat sheet, a sort of previously... <laughs> previously on COVID. Previously on COVID. <laughs> that will catch them up nicely for what's happening this week. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Meanwhile, obviously, the crisis in Gaza continues to be grim in every respect and will dominate headlines. US and Israeli officials and also the Qatari prime minister, however, are indicating that a deal to release hostages, possibly in return for limited ceasefire and the release of Palestinian prisoners, could be near. Can we know anything definite about this? I mean, we know definitely that a deal is close, right? I don't think that's being contested by either side. We know that it's all but agreed in principle, but obviously when it comes to stuff like that, they can fall apart on the detail. So what is still being discussed is effectively the number of hostages 
released versus the length of the humanitarian pause, uh, you know, with each side pressing for exactly what you would expect them to press for. I mean, is it a significant moment? I think absolutely, because it shows that there is Giorgio going on in the background, that there are brokers for it that the parties trust, and that there is some progress being made, because that's how these things work out always. You know, they go from one hostage to three hostages, to a bigger release, to a very short pause, to a slightly bigger pause, and then eventually some sort of diplomatic solution is found. That That is, there is no historic counterexample to, to that being the way out of conflict. It was another big weekend of protest as well. Pro-Palestinian protesters gathered outside the offices of Labour MPs who did not vote for the SNP's ceasefire motion last week. Those MPs included Keir Starmer and Emily Thornberry, and the Cardiff MP Joe Stevens' office was vandalised. Rachel Reeves says this crossed the line from protest to intimidation. Do you think we're seeing the temperature rise, fall, stay the same? It's it it's quite rancorous at the moment. I mean, I would say roughly the same. Some polls out over the weekend showed a dip in Labour standing. That might, might act as an incentive for those who do not want Starmer to do well, but also as a check on those who think this is a consequence-free expression of conscience, as it were. The point is, what I was just saying about the deal that's being struck, it does feed into this, right? There is a school of thought that only by reaching for the ultimate goal of ceasefire can you push parties truly in that direction. There is another school of thought that by pushing too much, you lose real opportunities for progress. You know, it is impossible to tell who is right on this. It is absolutely true to say that a ceasefire requires a level of trust. And there is that level of trust simply does not exist between the two sides right now. So calling for a ceasefire is unrealistic. But that doesn't mean it's insignificant. Trust can be built up by a series of pauses which are observed by both sides. So ordinarily, I would say that path makes sense. But there are people who fear that Israel will press on regardless and that re Israel has effectively decided to use what happened on the 7th of, of October to wipe out Gaza. And I cannot say with complete confidence that that's not the case. If that is the case, then calling for wishy-washy pauses is pointless. What that needs is the world effectively to turn as one and say, you need to stop now to Israel. So, I mean, it is impossible, it is unknowable, you know, the path that's not traveled. What is true is that a lot of innocent people are dying right now, and a lot of innocent people have died. And I think both sides come to this with the right kinds of motives and instincts, it's just that the debate is so passionate that they end up, you know, saying that the other side's position is ridiculous. They basically overstate the case wildly, which, you know, I'm also guilty of. But, you know, the point is, if you, if you saw Starmer go around giving interviews at the weekend, he kept saying 
about the people who disagree with his position. These are really good people with really good intentions trying to make sense of a very difficult situation. A few overseas stories uh, in Argentina. Javier Millet, the extremely volatile far-right libertarian who says he will exterminate inflation and take a chainsaw to the state, has been elected president of Argentina. This is unknown territory for South America's second largest economy. Millet has promised to slash spending and taxes, close Argentina's central bank, replace the nation's currency with the US dollar, ban abortion, deregulate guns, and consider only countries that want to fight against socialism as Argentina's allies. Any thoughts, Alex, on the bloke that they're calling the Argentinian Wolverine? Yeah, and also he looks like a sort of late Vegas period Elvis impersonator. Look, I don't know. The truth is, he was predicted to win, Javier Millet. Sergio Massa who is the sort of, I guess he's centre-left, but from the incumbent government, was expected to lose because the economy in Argentina is a binfire at the moment. I mean, we think we've got problems with inflation. It's uh, 150-something annual inflation over there. Sergio Massa did much better than people expected in the first round. So people got their hopes up, but then between the first and second round, basically Argentina ran out of petrol. And that was the the final nail in his coffin. So Javier Millet, he's basically an Argentinian Bolsonaro for all intents and purposes. So horrible, will probably do a lot of damage, will have to be watched closely. But, you know, the experience worldwide at the moment is that people like that tend to get one term because they make big, big promises, then they can't really deliver on them and people go, mm, yeah, that that seemed a little bit too easy. It's all kicking off at Twitter or X or TwitterX or whatever you want to call it. Again, <laughs> big US companies, including Apple, Disney, Paramount, Warner Brothers and Comcast, have all pulled their ads over claims that the site is rife with anti-Semitism, which we kind of know it is, but also that Musk himself has been amplifying that anti-Semitism. He says he's going to file a thermonuclear lawsuit against the non-profit Media Matters, which highlighted a tweet. But he responded to a tweet which accused Jewish communities of pushing hatred against white people with the words, you have said the actual truth. What's going on here, Alex? <laughs> so much going on here. It's going about as well as a SpaceX launch at the moment. <laughs> Basically, loads of people have pulled their advertising, quite rightly. Musk, first of all, threatened to sue all the advertisers for pulling their advertising. Now he's pulled back from that. And he said he will sue the company that highlighted what he had said. I mean, mean, if you go out on a public forum that you own, Mm -hmm. you know, with several million followers, it's not like you're some obscure account that no one is looking at. And you you go to to a tweet that basically suggested all Jews hate all white people. And you like that and you respond by saying actual truth, you can expect, I think, some scrutiny on that. I mean, the the bottom line is, look, Musk is already losing money hand over fist, and and the cost of servicing the debt that he went into to buy Twitter is, I think, something like a billion a year. But he is incredibly rich. So if he wants to, he he could keep this going for decades. So is he going to drop it 
one year before the US election when his power and influence are at the maximum? I suspect not. I suspect we still have a year of this absolute shit shower to go. I like the fact that his kind of legal position is the Homer Simpson defense. I swear to God, Marge, I never thought you'd find out. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's exactly right. One little thing that ought to be, get the popcorn in. This this is, uh, not everything has to be utterly, unrelentingly grim. Uh, the next hearing of the Prince Harry, Baroness Lawrence, Elton John case against the Daily Mail for illegal information gathering in the 90s and 2000s mm. begins again today, Monday. Mm. Uh, and as Private Eyes pointed out, a great many journalists whose names are redacted from the case against the Mail now work elsewhere, and their names may well be unredacted. So we may find out interesting people have been doing naughty things. Yes, and we find out today that Prince Harry may have to appear in court to give evidence. Oh. So that will be big box office as well. There's a lot of stuff going on, isn't there? I hope that the cumulative effect of all those cases against the newspapers do not result in some sort of cobbled together settlement, as they have done in the past. But they go through to their conclusion and result in a reigniting of calls to implement Leveson 2 in full, because our print media right now is out of control, in my view. Just to finish off, there are two anniversaries this week. The 60th anniversary of the assassination of JFK in Dallas. So brace yourself for think pieces. In many ways, the original conspiracy theory. In many ways, the one to blame for all the other ones that are consuming the world. And of course, there is the most important anniversary of what could possibly be. It's the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who this week. <laughs> and the, uh, the special is out at the weekend. Are you looking forward to it, Alex? Because I am. I am semi looking forward. Can I be uh -huh. semi looking forward to it? No, you can't. Because, because, uh, I'll tell you why. Because for me, David Tennant was always an exceptionally good doctor. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to his return in this special that he's doing. And I'm really looking forward to the transition to the new doctor because I think that will be good. But. Donna Noble was never my favorite assistant. That's kind of where I lost touch with Doctor Who, actually, in its reemergence. I just think from that point onwards, they got the assistants really badly wrong. I mean, it looks spectacular, I have to say. The trailer looks amazing. Well, we'll have a you'll you'll be surprised to learn we have a bunker uh, coming up this week on the politics of Doctor Who because what's the point of having a podcast company if you can't go on about the things you like? I'm going to say though, if you listen to our podcasts, then Catherine Tate and David Tennant will not be the only familiar face you see in this. That's all I'm saying. Special hint there, and that is start your week. Thank you for getting up early, Alexandreo. My pleasure. Listeners, thank you for listening. Remember, your support on Patreon is the bedrock of what we do here. So if you want to get your podcasts early and ad-free and help us keep going, search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how you can contribute. And you can still win a Bunker t-shirt or mug of your choice if you complete our listener survey. The link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreu and Podmasters group editor Andrew Harrison. The producers were Eliza Davis-Beard and me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. 
with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production.